So 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Quite a profound verse, isn't it? Incredibly reinforcing that all the promises of God find their yes in him. So to talk about God's promises is to talk most fundamentally about God's covenants. And so we're going to do a little series on covenant theology. It's been a while since we've done this. But covenant theology is so central to scripture, to you know, the gospel, that we're going to walk through the covenants. So R.C. Sproul says this. See if this kind of connects with you. The hardest thing in the world for the Christian is to live by faith rather than by sight. Right? Do y'all have a... Okay. It is one thing to believe in God, to believe there is a God. It is quite another thing entirely to believe God. But living faith involves trusting the promises of God. Even when everything around us seems to testify to the futility of our lives, causing us to lose hope, we are in a covenant relationship with God. Therefore, we are people who live by trust in his promises. We break our promises to one another. We break our promises to God. But God never breaks his promises. It's like that great Sandra McCracken song that we sing sometimes where she says, all those vows we've broken and betrayed, but you are the faithful God. So throughout history, God has demonstrated that he is supremely trustworthy. And that's why in one sense, nothing could be more foolish than not to trust the promises of God. And yet, that is the issue. And so, you know, I've kind of been on Psalm 22. And again, Psalm 22, after the cry of dereliction, when David, really prophesying, it's his own experience, but he's also looking to his greater son, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my groaning? The worst trial ever when we think that God is not for us. His immediate dialogue with God, as he starts with I, as he addresses it and works through it, the first you is, but you are holy and you have always been faithful to the fathers. That's one of the ways we work through our spiritual dynamics and deal with our hearts. So in his marriage book, Keller offers a great basic definition of a covenant. He says a covenant is a public, permanent, binding promise to be loving, faithful, and true. A public, permanent, binding promise to act 
in love, faithfulness, and truth to the person with whom you're in covenant. So much is in that. So that we know our marriage covenants are reflections of God's covenant. And so to think, you know, that's why scripture starts and ends with a marriage, right? So to think that God makes this covenant with us in which he binds himself to act in love, faithfulness, and truth with us. It's pretty staggering. So we study covenant theology because it's all about promises. It's the structure of God's promises. We also uh, study covenant theology because it, it presents the pattern of scripture. It's real tough to really truly appreciate the richness and the fabric of scripture without having an understanding of God's covenants. So the covenants are integral and foundational to divine revelation. God reveals his word and his plan biblically through the structure of various covenants. And you know this, you kind of review it in your minds. There's different stages through scripture. So covenants structure the scriptures or form the pattern of scripture. They, they order creation and redemption, those two major acts of God, and they delineate the various historical periods of the Bible. So over the next several weeks, we're going to look at various covenants. We're going to look at what's called the covenant of redemption, which takes place in eternity prior to creation. We're going to talk about the covenant of works, or the covenant of creation, which takes place between God and Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we're going to talk about the covenant of grace, that long, rich, wonderful, ever-widening, ever-deepening, ever-enriching, beautiful covenant of grace, which works itself out in various administrations, various stages. We could talk about the covenant of commencement, Genesis 3.15, the backbone proto-euangelion promise of scripture. Then we'll move into the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. And you see, biblical revelation is progressive. It uses progressive in a way we don't, you know, different way than we oftentimes use it. It's the sense that it's always unfolding, always developing, always getting bigger and richer and more definite, more multifaceted, more beautiful as you walk through scripture. It's not that each stage erases the prior stage, scraps it, throws it in the garbage heap and starts all over. That never was. It's one story. Our kids have a child's curriculum called One Story. It's one beautiful story that gets richer and more beautiful all the time through various administrations of the covenant that keep building on one another until they hit their crescendo in the new covenant with the coming of Christ. And so in addition to the covenant structuring scripture, we can say they also structure our relationship with God. The covenant serves as a bridge or the instrument that God has set up, instituted, to bring us out of curse and into blessing. Like how was God going to do that? He established this mechanism called a covenant through which 
He brings cursed people into blessing. And that leads to the next reason we study covenant theology. I say it's the point. So we've got promise, pattern, point. The main point of scripture. Covenants reveal it. So theologians like to wrestle with questions. Scholars like to wrestle with questions. So one of the wrestlings amongst various branches of Jesus' church is what is the unifying center of scripture? Like if you boil it down, what's the theme? What's the center? What's the point? And the covenant provides that. So last year, Jeremy uh, spoke on Psalm 23 in a Sunday school class, I believe, and he referenced something that Dr. Futato, I think it was an RTS, he's an RTS Orlando professor, I think it was one of Jeremy's professors. But he made a point that I just never heard before, but it plays in very good here. I just loved it. So uh, it says, in the Hebrew, let's talk about Psalm 23. In the Hebrew, the Psalm begins with the divine name of God, Yahweh. So it starts with Yahweh and ends with the divine name of Yahweh, concludes with Yahweh. Now that's a wonderful point, okay? Our life wrapped up by Yahweh. So signifying that the divine presence of God surrounds all of life. But more than that, there is a mathematical center to the psalm. That's the point that was new to me. There's a mathematical center that points to the main point of the psalm. In the Hebrew, there are exactly the same number of words before as after the phrase, for you are with me. And it's for that reason that the psalm can open by saying, I shall not want. Because you are with me. It's the heart of Psalm 23. And we should say, it's the heart of the covenant. That promise. So you think of that coming on the heels of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh wait, but you are with me. Well, the basic promise of the covenant is, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. That's just the promise that repeats itself throughout scripture. What promise can we cling to and claim? I shall be your God and you shall be my people. This promise of the covenant is repeated throughout scripture. It's not that God just gives us promises out there, like he throws promises to us, but that he enters into a bond with us to act in love, faithfulness, and truth, wherein, as a result of that relationship, he gives us precious promises that we hold to and cling to, that I'm going to act in love towards you. So Palmer Robertson says, this promise, I shall be your God and you shall be my people, demonstrates the thematic unity of God's various covenant administrations. In its various forms, he calls this promise the Emmanuel principle. So take that to heart. Just think about that as you're working through you know, your scripture reading for the day. That the basic promise that the covenant provides the framework for is the Emmanuel principle. That is, the heart of the covenant is the declaration of God looking at you and saying, I will be with you. So at the point, Psalm 22.1, when you think that God is not with us, we say, wait a second. The fundamental promise that you did all this stuff for 
is that you could be with us. So we cling and claim to that. It's the bedrock promise of Scripture. Well, finally, we study God's covenants for promise, for pattern, for point, and also just for prevalence. The idea is that the word covenant is found throughout the Scriptures. You've got to come to terms with it. In the Hebrew and Greek forms, it's found some 300 times in Scripture. But one of the things about your Bible study is that oftentimes a quality is included in a passage without the word for the quality being included in the passage. A story can talk about mercy without using the word mercy. You can talk about covenant without actually using the word covenant. So although the word is used some 300 times in the Bible, it's found you know, throughout Scripture in multiple ways because the content of the covenant is there. It's a dominant feature of Scripture. So what is a covenant? Well, we struggle with the concept for a number of reasons. Well, one reason is offered by Keller in his marriage book. It's a great analysis of our culture and ourselves. So he says, uh, we have such a thing as, you remember this, uh, consumer relationships and covenantal relationships. They've always existed and they're always necessary. A consumer relationship is a vendor meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you. So the individual's needs are more important than the relationship. Covenantal relationships are different. They are binding on us. So in a covenantal relationship, the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. So they're both necessary. They've always existed. However, what we're facing in contemporary society, and we feel it, is that the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer relationship model has become so influential that it's increasingly characterizing what has historically been covenantal relationships. And so we're just losing this whole sense of, of a covenantal relationship. It's, you get my, I need my needs met, or this relationship is no longer viable. And of course, it's affected our marriages. So Sproul would use another reason, okay, another reason that we struggle with covenants he goes back to political theory. So he would say, uh, you know, our country was influenced by the writings of John Locke, which took, talked about a social contract. So it's a relationship between the ruler and the rule. The leaders are selected by the people and ruled by con- consent of the people. So there's this agreement of mutual promise of fidelity. As long as you uphold your end of the bargain, I'll uphold mine. When you no longer do, then there'll be repercussions. It's a kind of covenant, but it's more a contract, a mutual agreement by equal parties. So it falls short of the richness of biblical covenants. We also talk about labor contracts, which would be similar. Even credit cards, I buy on an installment basis with the agreement that I'm going to pay it off over time. I don't know, we could talk about neighborhood covenants, which actually get a little bit closer, it seems, to a biblical idea since the developer sets the terms and you buy into those. All these have points of similarity with biblical covenants, but they're also different. Another, another issue we have with covenant theology is just because our Bibles are called Old Testament and New Testament, which is really kind of odd. And so we go, is it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or is it the Old Testament and the New Testament? So um, 
All right, this is going to be the fun part. Um, the Old Testament word for covenant is berit. Can we say that? Berit. Berit. Okay, you've got a Hebrew word. Just keep that in mind. Berit. Berit. Okay. So 200 years before Christ, Alexander the Great had done all his conquering. Greek culture had spread throughout the Western world. And it was gobbling up Hebrew and Aramaic. And so the covenant people, the Hebrews, got scared they would be absorbed and assimilated and lose their language and culture. And they feared for the scriptures. So 70 scholars got together. They took that Hebrew Bible and they translated it into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, coming from the Greek word for 70. 200 years before Christ, they converted the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It's very important because the New Testament writers not only availed themselves of the Hebrew text, but also the Greek text, which is really interesting. I know that's just riveting. It's very interesting. <laughs> um, so they had to struggle. What's going to be the word that translates berit, which is such an important fundamental word, into Greek? And there was a few options. They decided on a word, diatheke. Let's say that, diatheke. Diatheke, right. Now, it's not our favorite Greek word because we know what that word is, right? That word is splanknizomai, right? <laughs> okay, okay, got it? Okay, this will be number two, diatheke. All right, so diatheke had some disadvantages because it could also be translated testament like last will and testament. So with some senses that it had, one, that if it's translated testament, then it, one, can be changed. It can be, yes, okay. It can be changed as long as the testator is alive, like our last wills and testaments. Furthermore, it can be put into effect only once the testator dies, like our last wills and testaments, but neither one of those does justice to biblical covenants. They can't be changed, and they don't demand that God die. So that's why we have the confusion of Old Testament and New Testament because of the translation of that word, but it's not the most adequate translation. Furthermore, Latin is testamentum and you know, all that. Better would be Old Covenant and New Covenant. Okay. So why select diatheke if it had these difficulties associated with it? Well, there was another word they could have used. I won't even give it to you, but it's similar. <laughs> uh, the other word they could have used was a word that meant an agreement between equal parties. Equal parties, like a contract. And the Septuagint writers were having nothing to do with that. Because they were saying, it's not that two equal parties get together and work it out, bargain and barter and come to terms, part from you, part from me, and we'll figure this out. In no way. And actually the testamentum idea helped because testament meant the disposition of oneself, that you had sovereign right to dispose of your goods and property the way you wanted to. So that sovereign idea that you're in control of it is what they wanted to preserve in this covenant. Therefore, they thought it was, even with the difficulties, that it was more adequate to describe 
this structure God used to bring us into relationship with himself. So berit could be translated cut. And berit could also be translated bind. And that's really where we're getting to because covenant is always about a bond. So Robertson says, it is always a person, either God or man, who makes a covenant. A covenant covenant commits people to one another. And especially when you're talking about God and man, it's God who sovereignly stipulates how you get close. So one of the beautiful things about scripture is that God uses terms and phrases that people understand. He wants to communicate. And so before God ever made use of the covenant as the means to bring us in relation with self, it was already prevalent in the world. Like men made covenant with one another. Nations made covenants with one another before God ever made a covenant with Noah and Abraham. Did men come up with it and tell God about it? No, God embedded into humanity this custom of making covenants in order to prepare us to understand how he must save us through a covenant. It's a beautiful thing. All right, so covenants are a bond. They develop a relationship. And that's stressed by the fact that covenants, I'm going to go real fast here because I want you to do a little uh, assignment. So uh, oftentimes you see that because over and over in scripture, oftentimes it's associated with an oath or a vow. So there's a bunch of passages about that. We'll talk about more of that next week. Also, sometimes there are symbolic actions associated with a covenant. So sometimes they give gifts to each other or have a meal together or set up some kind of memorial or even sprinkle blood. In biblical covenants, there are even signs that make you remember it. And that's a really cool thing. I won't even go there today to think about the signs associated with each administration of the covenant. A physical sign to point to a spiritual reality. We have two of them here, right? In the new covenant. So a covenant is a bond. It's a relationship. Now, Paul Robertson's full definition moves on and says, well, it's not just a bond, but it's a bond in blood. It's a bond in blood. And what he means by that, it has life and death consequences. Issues of life and death. The fundamental issues of life. It's not just any bond, but it's a blunt bond that has to do with the fundamental issues of life. Bond in blood. And that comes out in a number of ways. Uh, largely through its derivation, it comes, may come of a word meaning to cut. There was a ceremony that we're going to look at, and you know about it, where to make the covenant, you have to cut things. It's a bond in blood. So if you, if you stand back and say, what's the most adequate term? Well, covenant is definitely the most adequate term for this relationship as in a covenant, death stands at the beginning as the consequences for failing the covenant And it comes at the end if you do fail the covenant. But in a testament, death just stands at the end to actualize an inheritance. The biblical data is much more rich than just testament. All right, so we can say then if we want to give one definition of a covenant, the easiest, simplest definition is it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A relationship with life and death issues about it 
that God sovereignly sets up with us as the means to give us the promise of his presence and life. All right, so I want you at your tables for the next you know, five or 10 minutes to look at a strange little covenant between two men and not the best of men, uh, Laban and Jacob in chapter 31. And you remember uh, Laban, you know, he's a wily dude, but Jacob kind of gets the better of him and slips away and tricks him and uh, heads back to the promised land because God says it's time for you to go home. And Laban's angry. Remember, he gets his men and they pursue him with his two wives, Leah and Rachel, and he overtakes them. The God said, you better not hurt Jacob. All right, so starting in verse... Starting in verse uh, 43 Laban of chapter 31 of Genesis, Laban catches up with Jacob. And you have a number of things about covenants. Remember I said it's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Oftentimes oaths are involved and symbolic actions are involved. And so just look at the details as they set up this covenant with one another and what's all in play and what kind of signifies and seals it together. All right, so y'all just read together 43 to 54 and pick out how you see a bond in blood. You know, between two men, it's not as important to say sovereignly administered because it's more of a, you know, a mutual agreement, but see some of the aspects of covenant. Covenant. 